Across California, the lights are on for now. On the brink of blackouts again, as power demand reached an all-time record high overnight, slivers of the Golden State plunged into darkness. Small regions, including parts of Silicon Valley, briefly lost electricity. The vast majority of the state, though, narrowly... ...power cuts across Pakistan after a breakdown in the national grid. It's left cities, including Karachi, Islamabad and Lahore, without power. The energy minister said electricity would be restored nationwide within the next 12 hours. He said it wasn't a major crisis. Backup generators allow many crucial services like hospitals to keep their power going. Services have blackout that left tens of thousands of New Yorkers in the dark. Power knocked out for more than 70,000 customers. Hundreds of people were stuck in elevators. Others were stranded on the subway. And there are still problems this morning. ABC's Ariel Russia After nearly one million people across England and Wales lost power yesterday. It confirmed to the BBC that although two power stations had failed simultaneously, it's not thought to have been the result of a cyber attack. The regulator Ofgem has demanded an urgent report into what went wrong. South Africa is one of Africa's richest countries, but it can't keep the lights on. But it's not a surprise. Well, this is a disaster of South Africa's own making because there were calls, there were warnings from many years ago. Demand for electricity is set to explode over the next few decades with more and more of the economy being powered from the grid. The UK National Grid projects a doubling of the country's electricity requirements by 2050. And with ever more reliance on renewable and often intermittent energy resources, like solar and wind, keeping a balanced and working grid is going to get more and more difficult. Managing the transition between a carbon zero grid it's a huge challenge and every country faces unique difficulties in balancing new energy sources and a variety of storage solutions, while at the same time upgrading grid infrastructure. And if decisions aren't made and action isn't taken now, countries could find themselves facing a lot more blackouts in just a few years' time. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins, a member of the SNC-Lavalin Group, to explore how countries will undertake the energy transition and what needs to be done to ensure grids can keep up with quickly increasing demand. And it's not just as simple as throwing power on the grid and having somebody use it at the other end. There's, I mean, other aspects of the grid, like frequency control, voltage control, that need to be managed by the, the grid operators. And having uh, all of your power coming from intermittent renewables makes it very difficult to balance that grid and, and maintain the power quality. The other, the other factor to consider here is that as we go through the energy transition, we're not only seeing more intermittent renewables coming on from a generation perspective, but we're also seeing higher variability in demand as uh, you have more and more people, like there's more and more applications and use applications that are being electrified. So, so, so you have you know, higher uh, variability on the generation side, but also potentially higher variability on the demand side, which, which makes the grid even more, um, or puts even more stress on the grid. 
Alistair Perry is the Vice President of Renewables for SNC-Lavalin in Canada. And as he points out, a grid reliant on intermittent renewables won't be able to consistently meet higher and more varied demand. What countries need is a baseload energy supply. Baseload supply comes from sources which do not quickly change their power output. If baseload sources like coal or gas power stations are on, they're generating a high and consistent level of power. You do need that kind of baseload solution. And I know there are people that will tell you that, that we don't need baseload. I believe that we do need that to, to kind of keep the renewable penetration balanced. Sarah Long is the market director for Atkins Net Zero Energy. So we're doing some studies at the moment to look at the cost of the percentage of renewables on a grid and how much that final kind of 10% or 20% costs, um, because then you're paying a lot more to balance the grid. And you do get a very sharp spike at kind of at the end um, for, the, for balancing the final 30% of renewable penetration. So going from 70% renewables to 100%, you get a real sharp increase in the cost to balance. Making the energy transition cost-effective and reliable requires baseload power. But carbon-free renewable baseload power sources aren't equally available to all countries. Access is determined by a country's geography and natural resources. For example, since 2015, 100% of Iceland's electricity has come from renewable resources. And this is in no small part thanks to the island nation being home to 32 volcanoes, which provide an abundance of geothermal energy. But the biggest source of Iceland's power comes from hydropower, generated through glacial rivers. Geothermal power is only available to a small number of countries, although work is being done to make it accessible across the world by drilling very deep into the earth. You can listen to episode 192, Drilling Deep for the Geothermal, to learn more about that. But hydropower is a baseload renewable source that is utilised a lot more widely, like in Canada, for example. I think it's almost 60% of Canada's electricity is generating using hydropower and hydropower has been around uh, for for over a hundred years. I mean one of SNC Lavalin's first projects was working on a hydro dam in Quebec and that was over a hundred years ago. Canada has 500 hydropower generating facilities and has 74,000 megawatts of installed capacity with further room to grow. All this helps Canada have the cleanest grid of any G8 country. But for many countries, hydropower also isn't really an option, at least not on the scale required to be a major baseload power source. Most European countries are a long way off the likes of Iceland and Canada in terms of being powered by renewable sources. The EU average share of energy coming from renewables was only 21.8% in 2021. But over half of that is from intermittent sources like solar and wind. So. We know in France where they have high renewable content and, and high baseload, they don't have the challenges of having to balance the, the renewable system. France's baseload power comes mainly from its 56 nuclear reactors. Whereas in Germany that's gone much higher renewable penetration, unfortunately they've had to fall back on, on coal storage while they're, while they're balancing 
which, you know, for a high renewable system where you're trying to really get the greener solution, unfortunately, it's kind of ended up backfiring a little bit. What Sarah is describing as backfiring is Germany's decision to phase out its nuclear power supply. As recently as 2011, one quarter of Germany's electricity supply came from nuclear power stations. And now, as of April 2023, none of Germany's power supply comes from nuclear. Despite huge amounts of solar panels and wind farms being installed in Germany, it lacks serious low-carbon baseload capacity, which means it's projected by 2030 that Germany and Poland will be EU's largest coal-powered electricity producers and will be responsible for 50% of the EU's total power sector emissions. While nuclear power is a controversial source of power for some, it is undeniably a low-carbon alternative to gas and coal power and can provide nations with a reliable baseload level of power. I think the French have led the way on the nuclear side of doing things. And, and when you look at the various apps that show you the carbon intensity of different grids, France is often out there with the lowest carbon generation. The kind of comparison between France and Germany shows you that it's the cost element of it. It's getting to that least cost energy transition. And I think to People will tell you that nuclear is expensive um, if you look at levelised cost of energy. However, if you look at an entire system balance cost, actually nuclear starts to look very much more affordable. While a strong mix of baseload power and large intermittent renewable capacity may be the best way to build a future net zero grid, this is a transition. Nuclear may provide a cost-effective low-carbon source of baseload power. But for countries that don't already have lots of nuclear power plants, building the necessary infrastructure takes a long time. Time we don't have. This means we also need alternative interim solutions that can remove as much of the carbon emissions from existing energy production as possible, like carbon capture. So I know carbon capture and storage is, is quite a kind of political thing, but it's kind of, it's for the final... 10% where you can't you can't find other solutions my preference for an energy system would be renewables plus nuclear but equally we are on a transition and whilst we can't make those numbers stack up between renewables and nuclear therefore putting carbon capture and storage on is a kind of five-year project perhaps whereas a nuclear project is more like 12 years so I think carbon capture and storage is a energy transition solution. Natural gas is, is going to have to play a role, I think, in the energy transition. And I know there's a lot of work being done on carbon capture to perfect uh, the technologies, drive down the cost, improve the risk profile to make sure that whatever sequestered stays underground, or even find ways of using the CO2 that's captured in useful products. There are currently 30 carbon capture plants in operation, with over 150 in constructional development. While it's not an ideal long-term solution, it can help clean up existing energy sources and energy-intensive industries that will find it more difficult to electrify operations. 
But as electricity grids transition away from the stable, predictable baseload of fossil fuel-based energy and towards using more intermittent renewables, failing to meet the ever-increasing demand becomes a greater risk. We, we've been, I think, a little bit surprised by what the expected increase in demand is. So I think if, you know, three years ago, if you looked at a lot of the forecasts for demand growth, it, it was, you know, very small scale demand growth. And now all of a sudden, when forecasts have been revised and we look at the energy transition and all the electrification of vehicles, of buildings and so on, the, the large emission sources, now the, the forecasts for demand have grown significantly and, you know, looking at uh, out to 2050 in Canada, we're looking at two to three times um, the amount of demand that we have today. Essentially, the grid um, balances by kind of looking at an hour by well, half hour by half hour, what what the supply is that's on the grid and what the demand is, and making sure those match. And so, when you get periods of low renewable generation, they they generally prioritise renewables on the grid. But when there's low generation, they need to put other sources onto the grid. But as demand becomes more variable, as does the production of energy, a decarbonised grid will need a backup. If demand spikes when there is no wind, something will need to replace that energy source. And that's where energy storage comes in. Yeah, there's lots of different kinds of storage, that of energy storage that's being evaluated batteries i think are, are have been the most uh ubiquitous but uh you know there's compressed air storage there's other mechanical storage uh means thermal storage is also being evaluated so storing the energy and heat and then having that heat then uh, converted back to steam to turn a turbine i mean some of these applications are are, are well suited for instance if you have an existing coal-fired power plant that you're looking to shut down, um, you can still use certain aspects of, of the site there to, for instance, the steam turbines could be used and integrated with a new kind of thermal storage model. So th those are uh, other areas that, have, that are being evaluated. Storing some of your energy production so you can use it when it's needed will be crucial to balancing a decarbonised grid. But the kind of energy storage a country might choose to focus on depends on the makeup of its energy production. Take Canada with its high levels of hydro and nuclear power. The country has its energy baseload well covered. This means large-scale, long-term storage is not as important as short-term storage, which can be used to meet the peak demand levels. And I think it's because we've, we've been blessed with those uh, baseload uh, assets, and we've had, you know, the peaking ass the peaking generating assets available when we needed them. So we haven't looked a lot at, at grid storage in general, but I think the the bits that have been developed are more focused at this stage on the short term, managing, you know, four hours of peak, and the battery energy storage systems are are uh, what we've seen, I think, uh, getting developed the most. Canada can also use its hydroelectric power as a long-term storage solution. Using excess electricity to pump water back up to an elevated reservoir, the water can be stored at higher elevation before more electricity is needed 
and it can be sent back down through the hydroelectric turbines. But for other countries without as much access to hydropower, other longer-term storage solutions will be needed. Storage that can hold and discharge energy for periods of days, weeks, or even months. And for now, batteries just won't do. It's a known technology. Um, it's easy to kind of procure and put together a battery farm fairly quickly. But we, we know that even EVs at the moment are limited. So there are kind of battery, battery supply chain will be a challenge. So the, the main drawbacks with batteries are the duration. At the moment, I think the kind of longest duration is a few hours that you're getting, which don't cover those um, what we call dunkel flout days where you get long periods of no wind and, and, and low sun. And really, you then need days of storage solution rather than hours. That word dunkel flout comes from a country that struggles with its intermittent resources. It's a German word for dark doldrums or dark lull, and describes the most challenging weather conditions. But the, for the longer duration, there are a variety of options being trialled of various, um, various different technology readiness levels. So the one that we're looking at particularly is, is hydrogen storage, so converting gas storage, which currently exists in salt caverns to store quite large quantities of gas, um, converting that to hydrogen storage. Electricity can be converted into hydrogen through electrolysis. Then it can be stored in vast quantities until it is needed to be turned back into electricity. While the round-trip efficiency of hydrogen is not as high as other storage methods, the huge quantities and long time periods that the hydrogen can be stored make it useful for countries with a lower level of baseload renewables. Hydrogen is already stored in a handful of salt caverns in the US and Europe, but work still needs to be done to allow for hydrogen storage to use existing natural gas pipes and infrastructure. So hydrogen has a, a different molecular structure and so the, the pipes, uh, there is potential for more seepage from pipes. Gas turbines as well aren't really designed to run on um, hydrogen at the moment. So there are various projects in the pipeline for, for blending different amounts into gas turbines and various new projects um, being looked at for hydrogen powered gas turbines, but they're not, not quite mature enough yet. There are currently many different storage options for both the long and short term. And while currently batteries are the most advanced for short term storage, and pumped hydropower is the most used for long-term storage, researching, developing, and investing in a wide range of storage methods will be very important in helping all countries through the energy transition. While one storage solution may look the most cost-effective right now, that may not always be the case. If you're looking at a system planning perspective, the general incentive when we're addressing the solutions to the energy transition i mean the 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 main driver is going to be likely cost but there's a whole bunch of other considerations like reliability socioeconomic benefits or safety and if you leave the market to decide on its own it might make a short-term decision that's not necessarily even from a cost perspective best in the long term and while batteries may look like the most effective option now there will still have to be other options, as the world won't be able to rely on batteries alone. 
if we were to convert all of the UK's 32 million petrol vehicles to electric vehicles, what, what would that imply in terms of resource demand? And if you look at a few of these, um, what, what I think now are called energy transition minerals, the increase in demand for, for those minerals is, is staggering. So just to give you a couple of examples for numbers, for that 32 million vehicle conversion, if we're to look at a mineral like cobalt, which plays a significant role in the battery, the, the increase in demand for that conversion would be a factor of two times what the current annual global production of cobalt is. And that's, and that's just converting the, uh, the UK petrol vehicle fleet. We haven't touched any of the other countries. So that amount of minerals, just uh, two times the global annual production of current annual production of cobalt to replace the UK's fleet. Imagine what that looks like when you go and try to replace fleets of vehicles in other countries. So I think part of the reason why in the energy transition, I think, uh, you know, you hear this a lot. We need a little bit of everything or a lot of everything maybe is a better way to put it, is that there's various bottlenecks that we're going to run into in the transition that we need to find solutions to. Even once a country manages to create a reliable mix of green energy source with sufficient baseload, backed up by strong storage capabilities, there is still one more element of the energy transition that will be a challenge for all countries, and that is upgrading the grid itself. One area that we're running into challenges in Canada is that the grid infrastructure itself, the transmission infrastructure and some of the distribution infrastructure is, uh, is quite old. It was installed 50 years ago, or in some cases even, uh, even uh, longer ago than that. And so there are transmission corridors which are already maxed out in terms of what they can transmit. One of the contributing factors to this is that Canada's electricity system is managed at a provincial level, not at a national level. So in, in a lot of cases, the grid has been, call it optimized, at the province level, but not at the national level. There are opportunities to, to further optimize the grid through improving the interconnects between the provinces, which would give some of those grids more flexibility to, to bring on more of those renewable generating assets. Wind and solar farms often require a lot of space and will be situated a lot further away from the point of energy consumption than traditional power plants. Provinces in Canada, states across America and countries all over Europe will want to be able to share power with their neighbours when the sun is shining or wind is blowing in one place, but not the other. I mean, the more we can integrate, I think, the grids and uh, I guess to a certain reasonable level, but definitely at the uh, continent level, you know, the more we can integrate, the more flexibility is available. I think there's risks that go along with it too uh, that need to be managed. So if there's an interruption in one area of the grid, you don't want it to propagate uh, across a massive area. You have to have some risk mitigation measures in place there. All this means that power lines are going to have to carry more power for longer distances. And in most places, the grids will need major upgrades to allow for this. 
The International Energy Agency estimates that from now until 2030, global investments into grid upgrades will need to reach $600 billion a year to reach net zero targets. The energy transition is a complicated process that will look different from country to country, but it is also an incredible opportunity. If countries can get the transition right, they can also solve the energy trilemma. Renewable energy is naturally more sustainable, and it is already more affordable with two-thirds of newly installed renewable power being cheaper than the cheapest fossil fuel option. The last part of the energy trilemma is reliability. And while intermittent renewables don't have the same reliability as coal power plants, the right mix of baseload power and storage capabilities can keep a green grid reliable. And a green grid can also improve reliability in another way. Countries will no longer need to rely on importing fossil fuels from other places. The UK has been reliant on importing gas, oil and coal from around the world and being reliant on those countries risks our energy security as the war in Ukraine has shown. But thanks to the UK's growing renewable power generation, which accounts for 40% of our total electricity, for the first time in over a decade, the UK was a net exporter of electricity. The energy transition is not just a necessity, it's a great opportunity for all countries to be self-sufficient in their energy production. But while progress is being made, net zero goals are approaching fast and action needs to be taken now. If we're talking about a decarbonised grid in 2035, then we should know right now what that grid is going to be made up of. And I know we've got things like 50 gigawatts of wind, which is great if all of that can get built. Um, by 2035 and get connected to the grid by 2035, that still gives us a shortfall. And we haven't yet defined exactly which projects make up that shortfall. And I think that is something that the government need to be leading on because there's 13 years, or well, 12 years, sorry, to get to 2035. Most of those projects should be initiated by now. So we really ought to know what the balance of kind of make what the makeup of projects that gets us to that that full solution is. Currently in the UK, a lot of it has been research type projects or initial early concept phase. We really now need to be getting a lot of those projects into delivery. And I think we probably know about 70 to 80% of what that grid will look like, but there's still a fair gap to close and especially if we want to take more and more of those, the, the gas power stations off the grid gradually. The pace needs to increase from, from where it is now. And I, you know, I think other people have, have said this. If we, if we really truly believe that we're in a climate crisis right now, you know, I, I'd say our behavior doesn't really reflect that. We need to move quicker and accept certain risks as we move quicker because uh, if we continue at the pace we're at, I, I, I don't think we're going to be able to, uh, to, to get to the mitigation that we, we really want to avoid the worst effects of the expected climate change.
Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Johnny Dowling, and hosted by me and Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the baseload support that keeps the podcast energised is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Atkins, a member of the SNC Lavalin Group. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. The Engineering Matters and Reby Media team have been working on a new podcast series in partnership with HS2. How to Build a Railway is a 12-part podcast series exploring the story behind the construction of the UK's new high-speed rail line. It's now available on all podcast apps. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk.